The following podcast contains adult themes and is suitable for mature audiences only. Hello and welcome to Lyrics of Their Life, the podcast that talks about the extraordinary lives lived by those that wrote or performed the songs we know and love. I'm your host Adam Hampton and in today's episode we'll be exploring the life and music of the members of ACDC including Bon Scott, Angus and Malcolm Young and Brian Johnson. Aussie rockers ACDC are known today for being the most successful Australian rock and roll band to make it around the world, selling millions of albums across the globe and bringing their hard-hitting rock tunes to the live stage for almost 50 years and are still going to this very day well into their late 60s and early 70s. From their early days as migrants from Scotland to Australia and their very first gigs in pubs and bars to the death of legendary frontman Bon Scott and the incredible rebirth of the band in the 80s with Brian Johnson at the helm, we will examine what life was like before they became a famous rock and roll band, what life was like for them on the road, the beloved members they lost along the way, and what the boys are up to these days. This is the story of ACDC. This is Lyrics of Their Life. We begin the ACDC story with the Young family and the oldest of the two ACDC brothers, Malcolm Young, who was born Malcolm Mitchell Young on the 6th of January 1953 in Glasgow, Scotland. His father was William Young, who was 41 at the time, and he was married to Malcolm's 39-year-old mother, Margaret Young. Margaret was a homemaker and housewife who cared for the children. While William had previously worked as a wheelboy at a ropeworks factory and then as an operator in an asbestos and cement business before he joined the Royal Air Force and served in World War II as a flight engine mechanic. After the Second World War had ended, William worked in the building industry and then as a postman. Malcolm also had six older siblings, including his oldest brother Stephen, who was already around 20 years old. His second brother, John, was aged 16. Then there was Alex, who was 15. His only sister, who was also named Margaret, who was 18. William Jr., aged 13. And George Young, who was 7 years old at the time, of Malcolm's birth. When Malcolm was just 2 years old, however, he welcomed his sixth sibling and baby brother into the world, named Angus McKinnon Young, on the 31st of March, 1955. Together, as a very close family of 10, they lived at 6 Scarryville Road in the working-class Cranhill district of Glasgow, Scotland. Life was harsh at this time, however, as World War II had just concluded and there wasn't a lot of work or money to go around. It was a bleak and dark time, but the family stuck together. What they lacked in finances, they made up for love and a happy home. In the early months of 1963, however, 
Malcolm and Angus's father, William, had lost his job and was unemployed, making times much tougher. On one particular day, a TV advertisement appeared on the young family's television that promoted the country of Australia and that the Australian government were running an assisted travel program to allow people from other countries to immigrate more easily and affordably. The advertisement promoted the Australian way of life with lush beaches, sunny days and the amazing cities and places to explore. But it was also promoted as a working man's paradise with a more laid-back lifestyle. This caught the attention of Margaret and William Young as they decided to look into it further for a better life for their children. At the time, making their decision easier was the big freeze of January to March of 1963, which remains one of the coldest winters in the United Kingdom's history. Snow at the time was at least eight feet deep as it blanketed fields, roads and railroads, while rivers, lakes and even parts of beaches had frozen over. With the opportunity to escape to a much warmer climate in Australia, the young family including Angus, Malcolm, Stephen, Margaret, William Jr, George and their parents along with other extended family decided to take the plunge and relocate their family and their lives to Sydney, Australia in late June of 1963. They travelled via aeroplane leaving behind their homeland of Scotland. With seven year old Angus throwing up on arrival to his new home country. Their brother John at first stayed behind but then chose to join them on a later flight. The only sibling to remain behind to travel around Europe and focus on a musical career was their older brother Alex, who became a backing member of Tony Sheridan's backing group called Bobby Patrick Big Six and later went by the name George Alexander, becoming a vocalist and guitarist of a London-based group called Grapefruit before becoming their band manager in 1967. He earned quite the reputation for himself, becoming a songwriter for Apple Music Publishing, and even earned the attention of the Beatles who helped promote his band Grapefruit, where he was praised by the likes of John Lennon. Music was an extremely important part of the young family's life, with all the male children being very interested in a range of instruments. As Malcolm said, quote, All the males in our family played. Stevie, the oldest, played accordion. Alex and John were the first couple to play guitar, and being older, it was sort of passed down to George, then myself, then Angus. Angus revealed that Alex and Stevie had taught him how to play the piano and how to correctly place his fingers, while all the other brothers took turns in teaching him new things on the guitar. At their fingertips, Malcolm and Angus had the best music teachers they could imagine. While they had little money, there were always guitars or instruments lying around the house that they could pick up and play a tune that popped into their head, or Angus would simply try and replicate the songs he heard on the radio. Angus remembers his family playing all sorts of instruments like guitar, piano, saxophone, clarinet and accordions. Their sister Margaret was also instrumental in shaping Malcolm and Angus's music tastes, as she would go and buy records and put them on for the boys, including the likes of Bo Diddley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Fats Domino, and Angus's idol, Chuck Berry, who he later imitated to form his own version of the famous duck walk with the guitar when playing live. 
Music was always around them, as they would often hold family parties and dance and sing to old rock songs, as someone would jump on the piano. These traditions would continue when they relocated to Australia. When they first arrived in Sydney, Australia, they were required to travel on a bus and stay at the Villawood Migrant Hostel in a half-cylindrical makeshift house known as a Nissen hut. This would be where they would remain until they were able to find a sufficient house for their large family, as they could hear the sounds of kookaburras and the sounds of a completely brand new environment as they arrived. The hostel would much later become the Villawood Immigration Detention Centre, located in Western Sydney, and the huts they stayed in were designed by the Americans and utilised during the Second World War, with bent sheets of metal shaped into a cylinder-type shape, forming the main frame of the building, which would have made for quite an uncomfortable start to life in the country, and it's possible that they even had to share with other families at the time. Conditions at the hostel were very poor, and making matters worse on their arrival, Sydney endured six weeks of torrential rain, causing flooding, with reports that snakes ended up inside their huts, and even inside their bedding, to escape the rising floodwaters surrounding the hostel. The Youngs almost regretted their decision, as they were yet to see any of the sunny weather and the amazing beaches and lifestyle. For one of the Young family members, the experience wasn't all so bad for 17-year-old George Young, who had met another immigrant boy that was the same age as him from the Netherlands, named Johannes Vandenberg, or as he would later be well known as, Harry Vander. George and Harry quickly hit it off, sharing their knowledge and passion for music, and were both sent to attend school at Chester Hill High School, along with Malcolm, as it was the closest to the Villawood Migrant Hostel. It was during his school days that Malcolm developed a bit of a reputation for being a schoolyard brawler, as the Australian-born kids would often pick fights with the immigrants and would even make their way to the hostel, spoiling for a fight. George and Harry became best friends, and before they knew it, they planned to start their very own band together. However, in 1964, George was expelled from his final year of school for having long hair and refusing to cut it. While living at the hostel, George and Harry also befriended three other boys who were also immigrants, and together they formed their very own five-piece band called the Easy Beats, later in 1964. In the early days, the Easy Beats would rehearse in the laundry or washroom at the facility at the hostel. At the time, all members of the band were around just the ages of 16 to 17, with George Young becoming the rhythm guitarist for the band, Harry Vander was the lead guitarist, and joining them as the lead vocalist was Stevie Wright, who was born in Leeds, England. Then there was the bass guitarist, Dingeman Vandersluss, better known as Dick Diamonde, from Hilversum in the Netherlands. And then another fellow Scotsman, on drums, Gordon Snowy Fleet, who immigrated to Australia around the same time as the Young family. He became a member of the band after George had left a note on his doorstep that said something along the lines of, We heard you playing the drums. Want to join our band? Snowy, of course, was in. Soon enough, Harry Vander's family found a home in the Sydney suburbs, and so did the Young family, in a basic white semi-detached house in Burwood, at 4 Burwood Street, located in the inner west of Sydney. Both Angus and Malcolm were then enrolled at the surrounding school at Ashbury Boys High School. 
When attending school, Angus revealed that in order to fit in, they had to learn how to speak and understand the Australian accent and slang, as he described the Australian accent as, quote, a bit of Americana mixed with old world English. Meanwhile, their brother George and the Easy Beats would be signed to one of the first independent Australian music labels called Albert Productions by Ted Albert, as well as EMI. Australian music at the time was viewed by Ted Albert as too soft and he wanted to produce music that was louder and encapsulated the Australian sound and culture perfectly. Then all of a sudden, Ted's dream became a reality when he signed Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, who went big in Australia, prompting more Aussie bands to follow suit. In 1963, a third of the country were under the age of 20, and music was a huge part of life for teenagers, as the Rolling Stones and the Beatles went global. Just a year after leaving the hostel, the Easy Beats would then of course go on to become one of Australia's most successful pop rock groups at the time with brilliant number one hits in Australia, like Friday On My Mind and Sorry, top five hits like She's So Fine, Woman and Come and See Her, and classics that also saw success, such as Good Times, Heaven and Hell and Hello How Are You. From 1965 to 1969, they would release six studio albums and they grew to be Australia's answer to the Beatles. For Malcolm and Angus, watching the success of their older brother George with the Easy Beats was the perfect inspiration they needed to fuel their own desire to become musicians. The girls absolutely went crazy for the Easy Beats. Their female fans would jump onto stage to steal kisses and hugs with their favourite Easy Beats member, with one woman going as far as tackling drummer Snowy Fleet to the ground at one stage and pinning him down. Their fans would follow them to hotel rooms, be there waiting for them at airports and swarm their tour bus. But things got more intense for the young family when an Australian magazine revealed the exact address of George Young, causing female fans to rush to their family home in Burwood. The crazed fans stormed into the house, knocking poor little Malcolm to the ground and ran through the house to find George. Angus, who was only 10 at the time, was just coming home when he noticed the police were out the front, blocking and even barricading the entrance to his own house, with a crowd of screaming Easy Beat fans calling out for George. Angus approached the officer and requested to let him through, as he lives there of course, but the officer replied, yeah, they're all saying that. Angus was then forced to jump the gate round the side and enter his own home from the back door. This wouldn't be the end of the pandemonium, however, as the press and the fans would be located out their front door for weeks at a time. While some would be turned off the life of a rock star from these experiences, it only made Angus and Malcolm believe they wanted it more. They thought it was the coolest thing to have a famous brother and TV cameras just outside their door. Angus and Malcolm could often be heard playing guitar all the time in their bedrooms, as Angus would prop himself up in the corner of his room, strumming away on his bed. Easy Beats producer Ted Albert would often stop by the house and would overhear Malcolm and Angus playing up a storm, even telling them when they were young, if you're still interested in becoming guitarists when you're older, come and see me. Angus recalls always being told by their parents to be on their very best behaviour when Ted came around, in order to make an impression and be respectful to the head of their brother George's label. It's said that Angus began playing the banjo as his very first instrument, 
and instead of having five strings, he added an extra one like a real acoustic guitar. His mother soon bought him a cheap second-hand acoustic guitar, but since age nine, Angus had dreamed of owning a Gibson SG electric guitar. After reading a guitar book, and to him, this particular guitar had the right appeal. Angus said, quote, As soon as I had some money, I thought, well, this is the guitar for me. It wasn't until the year 1970, at the age of 15, that Angus realised this dream. After Angus saved up enough money to buy himself a second-hand Gibson SG by working some casual jobs, becoming his very first electric guitar that he purchased himself after getting it from a music shop just down the road from his house in Burwood. As Angus said, quote, I got out and got a Gibson SG that I played until it got wood rot because so much sweat and water got onto it. The whole neck warped. I bought it second hand. It was about a 67. It had a real thin neck, really slim, like a custom neck. It was dark brown. When speaking to the guitar show later in his career, Angus said, quote, I never really sort of learnt like in the technical sense, like theory or anything. It was just, I'd look at some of my brothers and where their finger was, and you would hope you would get it right, and Malcolm did the same. Angus also said, as he and Malcolm were so small and had smaller hands and fingers, they altered chords to suit their own ability, and when Angus reached his teens, he got right into the blues and rock and roll, especially the music of his main influence, Chuck Berry as well as Elmer James and Freddie King. While Angus would become known as a great rock guitarist, his incredible ability as a blues guitarist would often be overshadowed and underappreciated. Angus also claimed that in order to emphasise notes and sounds out of his guitar, he would move and jump around and pull faces, as he says it helped him work his way around the fretboard. During their schooling days, Malcolm was described by his classmates as more of a ladies' man than Angus, but that the pair of them were both great guys who loved to joke around. Angus was said to have been quite shy with the ladies, but he also had attitude. With his mates, Angus would buy firecrackers and one time even smoke cigars with his mates that made him very sick afterwards. And from this moment on, Angus would always have a strong stance against drugs and smoking and wouldn't be much of a drinker. In 1969, the Easy Beats decided to call it a day after travelling around England touring. They had worked very hard over the past few years to make it in the UK, even recording at the famous Abbey Road Studios, but struggled to capture an appealing sound for the UK market like they had done back in Australia. Their charismatic frontman Stevie Wright had wrote a lot of their songs up to this point, but his style didn't seem to appeal to the UK and was viewed as too naive or simplistic. George Young and Harry Vander then took over the songwriting duties to please the record company, but struggled to get creative. So after spending months locked away in a hotel room, they came up with their only top 10 hit while in the UK with the catchy track Friday On My Mind. This saw a resurgence of the band's popularity, especially in Australia, and finally the fans in the UK started going nuts over them too. The Easy Beats toured as a support act for Cream, the Four Tops and the Rolling Stones, but this wouldn't last, and after trying to mix up their style but failing to land another hit in the UK, they started to fade off. Things weren't all bad for the Easy Beats, however, as George decided to get married to his girlfriend Sandra while over in the UK. 
the Easy Beats then returned to Australia and had some minor success with a track called Good Time, along with a tour to help pay their bills, but the band drifted apart and wanted to do their own thing. Despite the Easy Beats era coming to an end, George and Harry made a deal to continue producing and writing music as a duo known as Vander and Young. It would be Vander and Young's incredible production skills, coupled with overseer Ted Alberts, that would help Angus and Malcolm realise their own dream down the track, as Harry and George got to work for other artists in the meantime during the early 1970s. Lead singer of the Easy Beats, Stevie Wright, however, would go on to have a successful start to his solo career with a number one hit called Evie and a successful debut album titled Hard Road that peaked at number two in Australia and even featured rhythm guitar by Malcolm Young. But after Stevie Wright was busted using heroin, he was let go by his label after his second studio album Black Eyed Bruiser was released and failed to take off. As Harry Vander fought a lot of George's younger brothers, and as Angus already had his own guitar, Harry handed down to Malcolm his very own Gretsch Firebird guitar from his days as an easy beat. Harry had noticed Malcolm's guitar was falling apart, so he thought Malcolm could use it since he didn't need it anymore, now his band had disbanded. As Harry Vander was quoted as saying, It was a nice guitar, but I didn't use it a lot, and Mal, the bloody thing he was playing was falling apart. It was terrible. I said, Jesus Christ, he was such a hot little player anyway, so I thought he deserves a good guitar. When Malcolm received the guitar, the neck and middle pickups were missing from the Firebird, so in order to stop the feedback, Malcolm would place his socks in the pickup cavity. Through the inspiration of their brother George, in 1970, when Angus was 15 years old and Malcolm was 17, they both decided to drop out of school early to pursue their interest in music, especially for playing the guitar, and started their own separate bands in surrounding areas, with Malcolm travelling as far as Newcastle in New South Wales to play for a band named The Velvet Underground, of course not the same band as the successful one. And Angus played for a band named Kentucky, which was later renamed Tantrum after the original band split up. In order to keep the money coming in to support themselves and their musical ambitions, Malcolm worked as an engineer for a bra company, and if music was to fall through, he was prepared to become a fitter and turner for work instead. While at work, Malcolm remembers listening to the machines and even finding rhythms for songs through the sounds that they made, and would go home that afternoon and turn it into a tune. Angus, on the other hand, landed a job at a printing factory. With their brother George Young and Harry Vander of the Easy Beats working together, the pair formed a project band called the Marcus Hook Roll Band as the lead vocalists, guitarists and bass and joining them in 1973 were Angus and Malcolm who shared the rhythm and lead guitar roles. Their older brother Alex Young also joined them on saxophone who had since come over to Australia after working on his own musical projects. Together the four brothers and Harry Vander recorded an album titled Tales of Old Grandaddy, with George and Harry Vander also producing the album. Not many, including the band members, remember much from this time however, as they were all highly intoxicated for much of the recording process, with George stating, quote, We all got rotten drunk, except Angus, who was too young, and we spent a month in the studio boozing it up every night. With Angus and Malcolm sharing responsibilities on guitar, 
To this day, no member of the band can remember exactly who played slider guitar on some of the tracks, suggesting just how wasted they were. But despite these shenanigans, they still managed to chart at number 89 on the Australian album chart, with Angus and Malcolm's very first taste of life as a recording artist coming thanks to their brother, with George stating, It was the first thing Malcolm and Angus did before ACDC. We didn't take it seriously, so we thought we'd include them to give them an idea of what recording was all about. George was a good brother to Angus and Malcolm, and while he may have been slightly biased, he never held back on telling people how good his little brothers were at playing guitar. When he had returned from touring with the Easy Beats in the UK, he was shocked to see how much they had improved, as they were playing better than people much more experienced than them. After having a taste of working on their first ever studio album, during 1973, 20-year-old Malcolm asked the now 18-year-old Angus to join forces and start their very own band. Angus believes he replied, Why not? It's better than work. The pair quit their jobs and revealed the news to their parents, but they didn't think it'd last more than a week as they were always fighting with one another. Malcolm and Angus at first would share both lead and rhythm guitar roles, but Malcolm would soon allow Angus to take the lead role and it wouldn't be long until they realised they worked incredibly in sync with one another and in their own words, they could read each other's minds. Although Malcolm took a step back to become the rhythm guitarist, his place in the band was integral as he was the driving force and leader who kept them on track to reach their targets and goals. Now they just needed a bass guitarist, drummer and lead vocalist. They got to work on hiring their band members and first assigned American-born bass guitar player Larry Van Crete, who had immigrated with his family from California at the age of 15 in 1969, where he became close friends with Angus and Malcolm during school and had been residing in Liverpool in Western Sydney. Next, they brought in the ladies' man, Colin Burgess, on drums, who was the only Australian-born member of the band and who had also been a successful drummer for a well-renowned Australian rock band called The Master's Apprentices, where he earned himself two Go Set Magazine poll wins in 1970 and 71 for Best Drummer, as voted predominantly by teenagers, and was part of two big hits with the band with Because I Love You and Turn Up Your Radio. Then to complete the band, they found themselves a lead vocalist with Welsh-born Dave Evans. Dave Evans had moved out to Townsville in Queensland at just the age of five with his family, before slowly making his way to Sydney as a teenager when he joined Malcolm's ex-band Velvet Underground. Malcolm had just left the band and then Dave answered an ad for Angus and Malcolm's band, where he then successfully passed an audition after jamming together. With Angus Young, Malcolm Young, Colin Burgess, Larry Van Crete, and Dave Evans, they formed the original and first ever lineup of ACDC. After tossing up names for the band for weeks and suggestions from other band members such as Dave Evans, they just couldn't find the right fit. Angus and Malcolm came up with the unique but catchy name for the band after their sister Margaret had suggested it after noticing the label on the back of her sewing machine that read ACDC, meaning alternating current, direct current, or in other words, electricity. Angus and Malcolm found this name to be easy to say and remember, 
and that it related extremely well to their raw energy as a band and their power-driven electric performances, as both Angus and Malcolm were quite energetic performers. Adding to their new name would be a high-voltage lightning bolt that replaced the forward slash in between AC and DC, representing power and the energy they liked to perform with. They also thought that ACDC was written on most appliances and in a way was a great advertisement for themselves. They also revealed that they once told a cab driver their band name and he confused their name as a slang word meaning bisexual or that they themselves must have been gay, which they took offence to. They considered changing the name over this but instead decided to stick with it. In hilarious circumstances down the track, however, they would find themselves booked to play a gig in Perth at a drag bar due to the confusion over their name. ACDC would rehearse at the Young family home in Burwood in between games of pool, poker and table tennis. Angus was committed to playing guitar and couldn't get enough of it. He would be seen playing before practice and then again straight after as he just kept getting better and better. When the house became too crowded, they often took their rehearsals to a building in Newtown during October 1973 as they prepared for their first ever gigs. Australian rock and roll was born in the pubs and clubs, and on New Year's Eve in 1973, ACDC were privileged to play their very first live gig on Goulburn Street at Checkers Nightclub in Sydney after they were booked by musician Gene Pearson. The nightclub at the time was one of the most popular and well-renowned clubs in the city and it was a huge way to start their careers. Helping them to get the gig was the fact that the band's drummer Colin Burgess was once a member of the successful band The Masters Apprentices and that Angus and Malcolm were the brothers of Easy Beat member George Young. With Gene Pearson among others seeming quite keen to see how the new band would go with plenty of expectation and intrigue riding on the gig. ACDC wouldn't play too many originals to start with, instead covering the hits by the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, as well as other rock and roll bands like Free, musicians such as Little Richard and Elvis Presley, and blues musicians like Chuck Berry, with their main influences coming from the US and UK rather than from Australia, as no Australian rock bands had really established themselves worldwide as of yet. It's said that on that night, they played a number of different sets as Angus performed a 30-minute guitar solo. Malcolm played bass occasionally when Van Creek jumped on the saxophone, while Malcolm and Angus also had a guitar battle as they entertained a crowd of around 550 people. After this gig, they would return to Checkers on a regular basis, as well as the Hampton Court Hotel in King's Cross and other clubs and bars that were full of drunk and rowdy, beer-swigging patrons going crazy over the loud music as the smell of sweat and beer would fill the air. During late January to early February of 1974, ACDC went into EMI Studios in Sydney to record their first ever single titled Can I Sit Next to You Girl in the style of glam rock after Malcolm and Angus had wrote the song and they had been testing the track out by playing it live. During the recording process, however, Larry Van Crete was fired by ACDC for not being up to standard and his bass lines were instead re-recorded for the song by George Young. This then led to a long line of bass players coming and going, with the next in line being Neil Smith, who joined the band during late February 1974. 
this would only be the beginning of a number of changes to the band throughout its history. That same month in February, more frustration set in for Malcolm and Angus when it was decided that Colin Burgess would also be fired, after a number of issues such as an incredibly long drum roll, which pissed off the Youngs, and also showing up to one of their gigs while heavily intoxicated, despite Colin claiming that his drink was spiked. Burgess had been hitting the drink so heavy that he was stumbling over his drum set, and he had to be carried off by the band at one stage so Malcolm had no choice but to let him go. Colin Burgess was then replaced very briefly by a university student named Ron Carpenter, who had been a drummer for a promising band from Armadale in New South Wales, called Bogoslav, but he too was let go for a man named Russell Coleman. Then the revolving door continued for a couple of months, as Russell Coleman was let go, and they settled on Noel Taylor. Dave Evans, however, wasn't too happy about all the sackings, and in particular with Colin Burgess, who he himself got along with well, which caused early fractures in the band and soured Dave's relationship with the Youngs. From March to April 1974, the lineup of Angus, Malcolm, Dave Evans, Neil Smith, and Noel Taylor continued to play gigs in New South Wales and build a solid following, but they still struggled to find their true identity. Angus said about this time, however, that they quickly learnt what the crowd didn't enjoy based off of whether they were booing or cheering. In the early days of ACDC, they were actually described as a type of glam rock band, with the style of Dave Evans rubbing off on the band, as they often wore flashy clothes and even satin. They were very much different to their later hard-hitting pub rock tunes of the Bon Scott era. Occasionally, the band's manager, Dennis Lachlan, who was once a member of Sherbet, would also step in on vocals for Dave Evans, with Evans and Lachlan sharing quite the rivalry and dislike for one another. During ACDC's early shows in New South Wales, Angus initiated his iconic schoolboy outfit look, but it wouldn't be the first outfit he trialled with the audience. During the early gigs, he actually dressed as Zorro, Spider-Man, a pilot, his own parody version of Superman, named Superang, short for Angus, and even played guitar in a gorilla outfit. That was until his genius sister, Margaret, came up with yet another brilliant idea for Angus to wear his school outfit from Ashbury Boys High School, as she thought he looked quite cute in it, and she still thought he looked like a schoolboy, despite already being 18 or 19. Margaret originally suggested it jokingly until Angus decided to go through with it one day, so his sister Margaret fixed it up for him on her sewing machine, with his attire including a tie and hat with the letter A for Ashbury. The very first gig that Angus wore the famous schoolboy outfit in public was during April 1974 on the rooftop of the Victoria Park swimming pool entrance in Camperdown which would go on to be one of ACDC's favourite places to gig, along with Checkers, in the early days. A famous group of photographs capture this time, as Angus is seen repping the schoolboy outfit with his red Gibson SG strapped to his back, while the rest of the band can also be seen in costume, with lead vocalist Dave Evans in a red and white striped outfit with long boots, inspired by Rod Stewart, crossed with Slade, Bass player Neil Smith can be seen wearing a motorbike cop outfit, including a helmet. The drummer Noel Taylor wore a Jester or Harley Quinn costume, 
fitted with bells and a top hat, while Malcolm dressed as a pilot in a white jumpsuit and long boots. Dave Evans believes that Angus didn't truly come alive on stage until he started wearing the schoolboy costume, which he said made him come alive. However, over time when Angus became the draw card for ACDC, Dave Evans admitted to becoming jealous over this and he believed as the lead singer that he should have been the centre of attention. Dave also claimed that he was always left out of band discussions and that he didn't really feel like part of the family which over time upset him and led him to become restless as he was sick of being told what to do with little input. Dave claimed that George Young and Harry Vander had a lot of say in regards to the band and that it became very clicky. At the end of April, Malcolm who was basically in charge of the band then moved Neil Smith and Noel Taylor on and found short-term but solid replacements for the time being in Australian-born duo drummer Peter Clack and Rob Bailey on bass. Both Peter Clack and Rob Bailey would remain with ACDC for around 10 months and had both previously played together in a band called Flake in 1973, who toured with the Rolling Stones during their 1972-1973 tour of Australia. By the end of May 1974, Angus had started to play more lead guitar after Malcolm had previously shared this role. It seems from this point on that Angus was officially given the role of lead guitar. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hi everyone, and sorry to interrupt. I hope you're enjoying this episode, but I just wanted to take this opportunity to tell you four ways on how you can support the podcast and play your part in keeping it going so I can continue to bring you more great episodes. If you enjoy Lyrics of Their Life podcast... First of all, it would be greatly appreciated if you could subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. It's totally free to do. It just means that you will receive a notification when a new episode of the podcast becomes available. Secondly, you can leave the podcast a positive five-star review on iTunes as this helps the podcast reach a larger audience. Third of all, you can tell your friends all about the podcast or join us on our social media pages at Facebook, Instagram, TikTok and Twitter. While finally, you can take your support one step further and head to our Patreon page and pledge your support to one of two of our plans for just $1 or $5 per month with no locking contract. Or you can pledge just a one-off payment for all the hard work that goes into creating the podcast. And you will receive a number of extra benefits to go with your donation. Or you can even buy me a beer for $5 at buymeacoffee.com forward slash lyrics of life pod. I am a totally independent podcast creator, meaning there are no large networks or businesses financially supporting my work, so your support would be greatly appreciated as it means I can continue creating more content, such as biographies, the weekly muse, interviews and more, as it takes a lot of time, resources and research to prepare and upload just one single episode. Links to Patreon and Buy Me A Coffee can be found in the show notes on our website at lyricsoftheirlife.com or on our Facebook page. Once again, I appreciate every one of my listeners for their support, no matter the form it comes in. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the episode. On the 9th of June, 1974, Sydney radio station 2SM were holding a free concert at Concert Hall at the famous Sydney Opera House. 
featuring a solo performance of former Easy Beat member Stevie Wright, who would take to the stage to perform an emotional rendition of Evie Parts 1 to 3. Through ACDC's connection to Stevie, they were invited to perform as a support act for him and would open the show, rocking the crowd with a bunch of covers and performing in their outlandish outfits. They were said to have put on a great show, however, and performed for around 2,600 people, with 10,000 being turned away due to the gig being a sellout. It was a huge moment for the young ACDC band, who were still making a name for themselves in the area. During the performance, concertgoers recall Angus performing his soon-to-be-famous version of The Duck Walk, once performed by Chuck Berry, as Angus would hop across stage, kicking his leg out while strumming his guitar, all while incorporating his own iconic pout, facial expressions, and headbanging. ACDC's first ever single, titled Can I Sit Next to You Girl, was written by Malcolm and Angus around this time, about politely picking up girls, and it was released later on the 22nd of July, 1974, peaking as high as number 50 on the Australian mainstream chart at the time. It became a regional hit, and led them on a small tour. To go with the single's release, ACDC even recorded and released a low-budget music video featuring Angus, Malcolm, Dave Evans, Rob Bailey and Peter Clack, despite Bailey and Clack not actually featuring on the audio for the track, as it had been recorded earlier that year. Dave Evans said about the music video, quote, That is the only video of me with ACDC that I know of. It was shot at the last picture show in Cronulla, which was an old movie theatre converted into a venue. We played there with Sherbet on a couple of occasions too. The venue was closed to visitors at that time so that we could shoot it. In the music video itself, the band can be seen wearing glam attire, while Angus for the first time on video is seen wearing his now iconic schoolboy outfit. ACDC up to this point had travelled around playing mainly in the city to the Shire, but also in Newcastle and the Central Coast, to Canberra and small country towns like Gunnedah, at venues such as pools, high schools, clubs, pubs, tin sheds, theatres, halls, football fields, you name it. If there was a gig to be played, ACDC would go there, which would earn ACDC over time the reputation as Australia's most hard-working band. Then from the 13th to the 25th of August, ACDC then had the privilege of supporting an opening for American musician Lou Reed, along with Stevie Wright, for a total of seven shows on his Rock and Roll Animal Tour of Australia, which took the band to places like the Horton Pavilion in Sydney and Festival Hall in Melbourne, Brisbane and South Australia for the first time, to perform for over 5,000 people at each gig. During a stop in Adelaide in August 1974, ACDC decided to play a gig at the Puraka Hotel, where a man by the name of Bon Scott had come along to watch the band after his manager, good friend and former bandmate for the Valentines, named Vince Lovegrove, had booked ACDC in to perform and had invited Bon along. At this gig, George Young advised Vince not to pay ACDC's current manager, Dennis Lachlan, and instead to give the money to Malcolm for the gig, as they were going to sack their manager anyway. George also asked Vince if he knew of any vocalists that could be a potential replacement for Dave Evans. Vince Lovegrove noticed Evans wasn't quite gelling with the band and recommended Bon Scott to George Young, 
with George remembering Bon and Vince from their days together in the Valentines, when they supported George Young and the Easy Beats on a tour of Perth. But George had his doubts and questioned whether Bon was too old to be the front man, due to already being 28 years old and the ACDC boys being in their early 20s and teens. When watching ACDC perform at the gig, Vince believes Bon said at the time, quote, they're alright, but they're only kids. They're a bit young, aren't they? For a short amount of time, Vince had been sourcing odd jobs for Bon Scott and gigs as a singer in a band and had kept in contact with George Young via telephone after word got out that ACDC weren't overly happy with their lead singer Dave Evans. This was in fact true, as George as well as Malcolm and Angus weren't overly happy with Dave Evans and didn't think he was the right guy to take them to the next level. For a long while, Malcolm and Angus hadn't really enjoyed playing the glam rock style of Dave Evans, and while in his own right, he was a solid vocalist, he lacked the charisma of a frontman and the vocal range that someone like Bon Scott possessed. They thought that instead, Dave was just too over the top and too flashy for them, or a bit of a pretty boy. As Malcolm said, quote, You know he'd go on with his makeup and maybe even blow them kisses. We just grew not to like him. Little did ACDC know that this gig would prove to be important in the stepping stone in forming the classic lineup of ACDC. Bond's wife at the time, named Irene, was also quoted as saying, The first time Bond saw ACDC was in August 1974. They came through Adelaide with the Lou Reed and Stevie Wright tour and played their own show at the Paraka Hotel. Bond was in stitches. He loved the little guitarist with his school uniform and backpack, but he thought they were a gimmick act. Most people did. Can I Sit Next To You Girl was a glam rock tune with muscly guitar work. Bond didn't mind the song, but he hated the singer. By the time ACDC came through Adelaide that August, George Young had put the word out that the band wanted to replace their lead singer, a guy called Dave Evans. After the show that evening at the Paraka Hotel, Bon was invited by George Young backstage to meet the band, where Bon got along with them like a house on fire, sharing similar tastes in music and of course their heritage, being from Scotland originally. Vince vouched for Bon, putting in a good word for him to become the lead singer, although there were concerns about Bon being too old, despite them all getting along so well, with Vince Lovegrove stating, quote, I had a meeting with Malcolm and Angus and suggested Bon as their new singer. They asked me to bring him out to the Paraka Hotel that night and to come backstage after the show. When he watched the band, Bon was impressed and he immediately wanted to join them, but thought they may be a bit too inexperienced and too young. After the show backstage, Bon expressed his doubts about them being able to rock. The two young brothers told Bon he was too old to rock. The upshot was that they had a jam session that night in the home of Bond's former mentor, Bruce Howe, and at the end of the session, at dawn, it was obvious that ACDC had found a new singer, and Bond had found a new band. That night, ACDC jammed with Bond Scott as they played covers of Chuck Berry, blues and rock and roll, and they gelled perfectly, playing songs all night long. It would prove to be an unofficial audition for the band, as the young brothers grew keen on having Bond join them. The way they all gelled led to Bon following the band around, hanging out with them often, and even landing a job with them on the road, as George Young decided to keep his talent close, should they sack Evans. 
While some stories between band members and those close to the band at the time vary, many believe that Bon Scott occasionally acted as the band's chauffeur, driving them to gigs and back to their hotel. But it's uncertain what exact gigs Bon carried out these duties at. In a 1976 interview with English journalist Ray Lancaster, Bon revealed that he had been employed by an agency as a chauffeur, driving bands to and from gigs for $10 a night, and that ACDC were the first band he had worked for as a chauffeur. While they travelled together, they of course came to know Bon well, and his larrikin and wild man persona that we all eventually came to know and love was most definitely there in the early days. Malcolm said, quote, when we met him for the first time, it was like we'd known him forever. No shit with Bon, no shit with us guys. He almost became a brother. While Angus said, quote, He was kind of weird. He pulled up in this old beat-up 50s car. He could barely see. You just saw this maniac head and this crazy guy coming flying down the road. From the 31st of August and into mid-September, ACDC played a two-week residency in Perth, Western Australia, at a place called Beethoven's Disco, before returning to the Paraka Hotel, the very next gig they did, during late September. It was at this gig at the Paraka Hotel, where Bon would get his first opportunity to perform with ACDC for the very first time. It just so happened that Dave Evans wasn't performing that night, after having some disputes with band management, so ACDC were performing instrumental covers instead. Vince Lovegrove then encouraged Bond to get up and sing for them, which after enough encouragement and a few drinks, he did. Bond impressed the audience, and most importantly ACDC, as they headed backstage and hung out once again. It was becoming clear after this performance that Bond had a lot more to offer than Dave Evans. At ACDC's next gig, Dave Evans then returned to front the band, but sensed he was on the verge of being squeezed out, which was exactly what they had planned to do. Dave wasn't very comfortable with having Bon around, being their chauffeur and a known lead vocalist. Dave worried his time with the band was well and truly up. On the advice of well-renowned touring promoter Michael Chug, ACDC travelled to Australia's hotspot for musicians in Melbourne, located in the state of Victoria, Australia, where they played during September 1974 at the St Kilda Esplanade Hotel. In the crowd at the show was music promoter and hard rock cafe owner Michael Browning, who made himself known to the band. Browning was impressed by Angus and Malcolm's ability on guitar, but he was disappointed by the type of music they were playing, being glam rock, and he wasn't so sold on the vocals of Dave Evans, believing he wasn't the right fit for the band. During October 1974, ACDC then travelled back to Adelaide to perform at the Largs Pier Hotel, where the young brothers called up Michael Browning to inform him that their manager Dennis Lachlan had quit the band and had left them penniless and stuck in Adelaide. Browning luckily agreed to get the boys from ACDC out of trouble and Bon helped bring them back to the Hard Rock Cafe in Melbourne for a gig which would ultimately turn out to be Dave Evans' last with ACDC. Once again, Michael Browning was impressed by the Young Brothers and decided to take up the vacant managerial role of ACDC along with their brother George Young and Harry Vander also overseeing the band. The management deal with Browning was also put together with a man named Bill Joseph, 
where they gave the boys from ACDC a tour bus, road crew, and a house to live in together, paying them a wage of $60 each a week. Bon Scott, who entered the fold at the perfect time, was a focus point of discussions between ACDC's management as Browning, George Young and Harry Vander discussed what to do with Dave Evans and if Scott was the right man for the job. Malcolm and Angus decided, with a push from Browning, Harry and George, that they would revert back to their true taste in music by playing more blues and hard rock style music. With this in mind, they were advised by their manager Michael Browning to let Dave Evans go, which they did. It's believed that Browning and Evans also clashed and that this was a large part of Evans leaving the band. With Browning stating in his personal memoir, Dog Eat Dog, quote, No disrespect to Dave, but they wouldn't have made it with him as singer. He could sing okay, but he didn't have the character Bomb brought into the band. The character, the sense of humour, the swagger. They were never going to go as far as they went, with Dave out front. Bon was the real deal. When Bon overheard that ACDC were on the hunt for a new singer, Bon Scott put his hand up for the lead vocalist role, telling the boys that I can sing. And as they got along with him great, and found him to be charismatic and a great singer, Angus and Malcolm discussed it with George, and they also had their doubts. The age factor kept playing on their minds, with Angus and Malcolm thinking that Bon was too old at the age of 28 already, despite Bon thinking they were too young. While George Young was impressed by Bon's vocal ability, he wasn't so keen on Bon's unusual quirky personality and rough exterior, with earrings in each ear, his high-pitched Aussie larrikin speaking voice, his missing teeth from getting in brawls, and his tattoos but he realised the pros outweighed the cons and that with Bon, they had the potential to go far. So they decided to take the pun on him and they gave him the job. With Angus later saying that Bon would be the perfect fit image-wise for their style of music to drive them forward. With Angus quoted as saying, We knew Bon could sing rock and roll and from that point we kept pestering him. Would you like to come and join us? Bon returned to Vince Lovegrove's place, where he had been staying, and packed up all of his stuff, and told Vince, I'm going to Sydney with ACDC. And before he knew it, Bon was out the door on his next big adventure. Bon would go on to prove to be a vital component of the band, that brought experience, charisma, and the glue that would bind the band together. On the 5th of October 1974, ACDC officially replaced Dave Evans, with Bon Scott as the lead singer of the band. Dave Evans went on to join a Newcastle-based glam rock band called Rabbit, with Bon making his first official appearance with ACDC as a lead vocalist during October in Rockdale, New South Wales, at the Masonic Hall. But to fully understand and appreciate ACDC's new wild frontman, we need to journey back to his beginnings in life. Where did he come from, and what had Bon been up to, up until this point? Bon Scott was born Ronald Belford Scott on the 9th of July 1946 at Fife Jamieson Maternity Hospital in Forfar, Scotland. Just like his new ACDC brothers, around 11 years before Malcolm and 9 years before Angus. Ronald, aka Bon's father, was named Charles Belford Scott or also known as Chick, while Bond's mother was named Isabella Cunningham Mitchell, also known as Isa, both of which were the same age and born in Scotland. Bond was actually his parents' second child, after he had an older brother named Sandy, 
who sadly passed away just after being born. Although at the age of three, Bond would welcome his little brother Derek into the world, who was born in 1949. The family of four lived in Kirimuir in Angus, Scotland, and decided to start a new life in Australia in the year 1952, when Bond was just six years old. They left behind the cold and dreary Scotland for sunny Australia, settling in the town of Sunshine, which is a suburb of Melbourne in Victoria, Australia. When attending Sunshine Primary School, Ronald adapted the nickname Bon, as there was already a boy in his class named Ronald. While his classmates played on the phrase Bonnie Scotland, often referring to him as this, and he wasn't overly popular when first arriving in Australia due to his strong Scottish accent, as he said, quote, My new schoolmates threatened to kick the shit out of me when they heard my Scottish accent. I had one week to learn to speak like them if I wanted to remain intact. It made me all the more determined to speak my own way. That's how I got my name, you know, the Bonnie Scott. Then at the age of seven, Bon and his family welcomed another baby brother into the world named Graham, and sometime later a sister named Valerie. In 1956 at the age of 10, Bon and his family relocated to the Port Harbour city of Fremantle, Western Australia, after Bon and his brother Graham had developed bad asthma and were struggling in the colder climate of Melbourne, whereas Fremantle was much warmer. Bon was enrolled at North Fremantle Primary School before being enrolled to attend high school at John Curtin College of the Arts after his parents noticed his talent and interest in music. Bon loved to sing and especially idolised Little Richard's screaming style of vocals, his energy and on-stage persona, an early rock and roll style of music. Bon loved a variety of music and especially loved the blues. He enjoyed Glasgow band the Alex Harvey Band and Free with Paul Rogers. It would be as a teenager that Bond continued to pay tribute to his Scottish roots by joining the Fremantle Scots Pipe Band, where he learnt to play the drums for the band alongside his father. Fremantle was a great place for Bond to grow up and it's said that he had a happy childhood, with plenty of mates around him who enjoyed hanging out and listening to local rock bands, as rock and roll was quite popular at the time in Fremantle. He was described as a cheeky larrikin, but on the other hand, he was a really nice easy-going lad, who some say even had a certain aura about him, even back then. Bon would often get involved in fights, but he was never the type to start them. Instead, he liked to jump in and help a mate out, often copping the brunt of a beating and losing a tooth here and there, but he could also hold his own, despite being quite scrawny. Like Angus Young, Bond decided to leave school at the age of 15 and began working a number of jobs, including as a cray fisherman, a farmhand, and as a trainee, weighing machine mechanic. Bond, however, was a rebellious wild child and landed himself in trouble on numerous occasions. During 1963, just before his 17th birthday, he spent time in Fremantle's Prison Assessment Centre and nine months at Riverbank Juvenile Detention Centre in relation to a range of charges, such as stealing 55 litres of petrol, having unlawful carnal knowledge, previously escaping custody and giving a fake name and address to the police upon being arrested. Bon, who was 16 at the time, had been arrested after attending a dance where he had sexual intercourse with a girl who was 15. When two other boys attempted to force themselves onto her, Bon jumped in to beat them up, causing the police to be called. 
When the police arrived, Bond gave them a fake name and address before taking off in a mate's car, only to end up in a children's court anyway, facing all these charges and being sent away to juvenile detention for boys and briefly Fremantle Jail. Bond was ashamed of his actions and vowed not to return to jail as he felt like he had let his parents down. When he was released, he attempted to join the Australian Army when he turned 18, but was rejected due to his criminal history after being labelled socially maladjusted, meaning someone who has had many run-ins with the law. They struggle with authority and cannot be trusted as they tend to be impulsive, manipulative and hot-headed. After the army was deemed not to be an option, Bond worked a number of jobs, including as a bartender, postman and truck packer, before keeping his musical passion alive by starting his very first band in 1964, called The Spectres, where he utilised his previous drumming skills for the Fremantle Scots Pipe Band to become the band's drummer, and occasionally he sung lead vocals. The Spectres were a five-piece band playing mostly covers of rock and roll and blues like The Kinks to Van Morrison rather than pop music. Together they enjoyed success and local acclaim as they gigged at dances and halls around Perth in Western Australia and in 1966, when Bond turned 20, the band would often play gigs side by side with another successful Perth band called The Winstons, fronted by Vince Lovegrove. After they shared the stage at a number of gigs and got along well, the two bands, The Spectres and The Winstons, decided to join forces to form The Valentines. As a member of The Valentines, Bond would often be stood in the background, miming along, but would sometimes share lead vocals with Vince Lovegrove. The Valentines soon flourished and became the biggest gigging band around Perth, performing mostly covers and a couple of originals. They were inspired by the likes of the Rolling Stones, the Beatles and of course the Easy Beats, with Bon himself being a big fan of the lead vocalist Stevie Wright. The Valentines would win a Battle of the Bands competition that saw them win a trip to Melbourne, where they entered a second Battle of the Bands involving 11 other competitors and performed two songs for around 5,000 screaming fans. The Valentines fell short of the winning prize, which was worth a trip to London. However, while in Melbourne, they decided to stay and tour the club scene, soon realising that Melbourne was the place to be for a touring band. It was vastly different to the music scene in Perth, and pretty much any band ranging in skill level could bag themselves at least two to three gigs a night pretty easily. The Valentine's style became known as bubblegum pop music, with a hint of surf music in there, which was far away from the bad boy antics Bon once knew, and to many, appeared to be quite lame and daggy. The Valentines travelled back to Perth to work hard for six months and got big enough that they even earned studio time, recording two EPs and eight double singles together, before permanently basing themselves in Melbourne by 1967, where two of their singles even peaked inside the top 30 on the Australian mainstream charts. Through the success of these singles, the Valentines gained the attention of none other than George Young and Harry Vander of the Easy Beats, who hired the Valentines to support the Easy Beats on their tour of Perth. This would be the very first time Bon Scott and Vince Lovegrove would meet George Young, which would only help them down the track, with George selecting Bon to front ACDC. After becoming popular amongst female fans, 
bubblegum music quickly faded off and became outdated. As the band was only earning enough to tour and not to keep food on the table, the band members all had to find jobs, with Bond becoming a postman while Vince Lovegrove worked at a menswear clothing store, both in the Fremantle area. On Bond's mail run, he would stop in for smoko or lunch at the menswear to drop the mail off and spend time with his good friend Vince. While on their break together, they would go and have a couple of drinks or sneak round the corner of the shop and have a hit or two of speed as they would chat about their dreams as musicians before heading off back to finish their work for the day. Vince and Bond's drug habits had often landed the band in trouble, which ended up causing the band to make a pact for a no drugs policy. While they were in Melbourne, the pair had snuck off to a gig featuring another band when their keyboard player offered them pot. Bon and Vince then arrived back at the motel stoned out of their minds when they were busted by their fellow bandmates and were threatened to be booted from the band. However, as the lead singers, they knew how important they were and that they were basically untouchable, so they continued to break the rules. Into 1969, the Valentines attempted to salvage their credibility and turned to rock music, having some success, but it was already too late and they were seen as a novelty act. Then during late 1969, the No Drugs Pact was thrown out the door when the Valentines became involved in a well-publicised drug bust. When the Valentines were caught by the police with the drug hashish or marijuana, Bon and his bandmates had purchased the marijuana in Geelong, Victoria, and brought it back to their rehearsal space at the Jan Juck Surf Lifesaving Club in Torquay, where they were set to rehearse with a brand new lineup for the band going forward. Police came knocking and busted the band, who later got off with a good behaviour bond and a $150 fine. While the charges seemed light, at the time, this was seen as highly controversial and the band were all over the front page and blasted for their actions, as it was one of the first instances where an Australian band had been caught up in such a scandal. Bond was interviewed many times where he claimed marijuana should be legalised, with fans, critics and the media quickly turning on the band. On top of this, problems then arose within the band in regards to the band's direction as they struggled to remain relevant for the right reasons. With Vince stating, quote, We were only being kept alive by publicity about pot, not by what we were doing. With everything stacked against them, all members decided to go their own separate ways in August of 1970 to start afresh. As Vince continued by saying, quote, We got lost basically, we got together. Bon and I decided and felt we had the right to do it as we formed the band in the first place, that we would leave the band. The news didn't go down well when Bon and Vince broke the news to their bandmates or management, but they wanted to move on and try something new. Vince would go on to music journalism and remain a figure in the music industry as a booking agent for bands to play in clubs and pubs in Adelaide, while Bon searched for a fresh start of his own. Bon took off to Sydney in late 1970, where he joined and became the lead vocalist for a hippie band called Fraternity, who were modelled on Robbie Robinson's The Band, where they played progressive and psychedelic rock. His time with the Valentines would help him become a frontman for the band, as he now sported a very hippie look about him, including a large bushy goatee or facial hair, 
wild hair, and occasionally he would appear in blue and red body paint. Along with all of this, he would sing in a much different tone of voice, with a lot more melody to it. After being signed to Nova Agencies, who also managed a band called Black Feather, the two bands would often jam together, and Bond was invited to play recorder, of all things, on a track called Seasons of Change, on Black Feather's debut album. After this, Bon Scott with his fraternity bandmates worked on their own debut album titled Livestock and relocated to Adelaide in South Australia by early 1971, where they settled in together on a farm. Involved in the recording process was lots of drugs and booze, including marijuana and even magic mushrooms. The eight-track album Livestock was released later that same year in 1971 and managed to chart at number 44 on the Australian album chart. Included on the album was a cover of Seasons of Change, which managed to be their most successful single, becoming a popular hit on radio in Adelaide at the time. Vince Lovegrove remembers speaking to Bon at the time, and recalls that Fraternity believed that they had high hopes of going far and becoming one of the biggest bands in the world. During 1971, Bon with Fraternity would hold a party on a farm in the Adelaide Hills, where a woman by the name of Irene Thornton attended after just arriving home to Adelaide from an 18-month working holiday in London. Irene was invited by her friend who was dating Vince Lovegrove, and it was here where Irene first noticed Bon after one of her friends pointed him out as he was stumbling around through the crowd wearing short shorts, a girl under his arm and a bottle of booze in the other. When searching for the bathroom later that evening, she happened to stumble across Bon in bed with another woman, in typical Bon fashion, as he appeared to have some sort of weird foot fetish. While this made Irene uncomfortable and weirded out, this didn't deter her attraction to Bon. One thing certainly stood out for Irene, and that was his infectious smile and larrikin personality. Over time, Vince Lovegrove introduced the pair, and slowly they built up a connection, and after a few dates, they became a couple. Later that year, Bon Scott with Fraternity performed in the Hoadley's Battle of the Sounds, or Bands competition, taking out first place this time around, after Bon fell short in the finals years earlier with the Valentines. The competition included the best bands across the nation, representing each state, with the prize being a free trip to London the perfect exposure that a band could possibly dream of. Fraternity were quickly building quite the young fan base during this time and were touted as one of the next big things out of Australia. On the 24th of January 1972, Bon Scott would become a married man after marrying Irene Thornton. Irene spoke very highly of Bon, describing him as very different to what was perceived later by the media, as she was quoted as saying, he had a lovely sense of humour, he was a warm person, he got along very well with older people and kids. According to Irene Thornton, the wives of the band members would help support the band, with Irene working as a receptionist, while Bon took up some odd jobs here and there as a wig maker of all things, which he absolutely hated, so he chucked that in and worked briefly as a barman. Fraternity was a very tight-knit community-type band, almost like a big family, that chipped in to support each other. Then in April 1972, Fraternity released their second studio album that was called Flaming Galar, 
which managed to peak this time around at number 28 in Australia, and was more successful than their debut album, which saw them move away from the psychedelic and progressive rock sound, and more towards the blues and classic rock. By the end of 1972, Fraternity had built themselves a solid following in Australia, and especially in Adelaide, where it was almost cult-like. Bon and Fraternity, as well as Bon's new wife Irene, then took their trip to London to test the waters in the UK, where they had the privilege of supporting Status Quo and a band named Geordie, who, believe it or not, featured Brian Johnson on lead vocals, the very same Brian Johnson who would later take over from Bon Scott after his death. While they were gigging together, Bon and Brian Johnson actually shared a pint together at one stage on the tour and got along really well, but would go their separate ways and would never meet again. While they were in the UK, members of Fraternity slowly started becoming homesick, and two of their members left the band. They managed to find temporary replacements and remained in England, even renaming the band Fang in early 1973. But by the end of the year, the band had fallen away, with their trip to the UK being viewed today as a flop and that they simply believed their own hype too much. Putting more pressure on the band and testing Bon and Irene's relationship were the living conditions in England, with all the band members, their wives and kids, as well as a dog, all crammed into the one house, living under the same roof, and it just became too much. On top of this, the wives were working hard to keep the dream alive by working day jobs and scrimping and saving to pay rent and keep food on the table, while the men struggled to gain traction with the band. The band hardly had enough to buy food, so they often found themselves chipping in to share fish and chips, which was all they could afford. Slowly, Bon and Irene started to drift apart after once being so close. Bon, however, made things much worse when he was found to be unfaithful in their marriage, and Bon's addiction to drugs also played a part in their straining relationship. According to Michael Browning, in his book Dog Eat Dog, he believes in relation to Bon's unfaithful behaviour that Bon revealed that he had been visited by two different women in the same maternal ward, as they were both about to give birth without each of the women being aware of one another. Bon was known for sleeping with countless groupies in his time, but was also said to have many potential children out there, two of which were almost certain to be born to other women during his time with Irene, with Benjamin Scott and Dave Stevens both later claiming to be his sons and that they were born during the early 70s. The remaining members of fraternity, including Bon and Irene, decided to return to Australia to assess where to go from from here. Bon Scott, along with a couple of other willing band members of Fraternity, or now known as Fang, would go on a hiatus, with Bon being completely broke and depressed, now that a second band had failed. On top of this, at the beginning of 1974, the relationship between Bon and his wife was on the rocks. With 1974 off to a poor start, Bon began working an average day job at the Wallaroo Fertiliser Plant, but was clearly upset and he started heavily drinking, with some saying he would be drinking brandy straight from the bottle and that he started to become aggressive when he would drink. This often led Bond to jump on his motorbike while heavily intoxicated and ride off angrily into the night. Despite this, Bond kept getting presented with opportunities and recorded a number of songs with another Adelaide-based band 
called Headband under the project name Mount Lofty Rangers as he became a makeshift member until he could find a new band. Bond worked with some remaining members of Fraternity and Peter Head of Headband to create new songs, with Peter stating, quote, Headband and Fraternity were in the same management stable and we both split about the same time, so the logical thing was to take members from both bands and create a new one. The purpose of the band was for songwriters to relate to each other and experiment with songs, so it was a hotbed of creativity. Vince Lovegrove of Bond's former band The Valentines said, quote, Bond would go to Peter's home after a day of literally shoveling shit and show him his musical ideas he had during his day's work. Bond's knowledge of the guitar was limited, so Peter began teaching him how to bridge chords and construct a song. One of these songs from these sessions was a ballad called Clarissa, about a local Adelaide girl. Another was the country-tinged been up in the hills too long, which for me was a sign of things to come with Bond's lyrics. Simple, clever, sardonic, tongue-in-cheek. With the Mount Lofty Rangers, Bond recorded tracks featuring his vocals called Round and Round and Carey Gully, both of which were heavily bootlegged and weren't released until much later in 1996 by Peter Head. During a rehearsal session with the Mount Lofty Rangers, on the 3rd of May 1974, tragedy would strike when Bon Scott got on the drink once again and engaged in an explosive argument with a fellow bandmate. He stormed out of the room slamming a bottle of Jack Daniels to the ground and at around 11pm, a furious and wasted Bon Scott hopped onto his Suzuki GT 550 motorbike and sped off into the rainy wet night. Around roughly midnight to 1pm, Bond was discovered to have been involved in an accident after losing control in the wet weather and coming off his bike after colliding with an FC Holden. Bond had smashed through the car's windscreen, almost killing him. The 17-year-old driver of the Holden, named Lee Morgan, had been travelling to Port Adelaide with some mates when Bond on his motorbike seemingly came out of nowhere and the crash occurred. 17-year-old Lee was shocked to learn later that the man was in fact Bon Scott, as he was a big fan of fraternity. Lee Morgan's FC Holden was written off, and he was charged with not giving way, but was eventually let off all charges. Bon's wife Irene was notified, but was not in a position to pick him up, so she phoned Vince Lovegrove, and he proceeded to pick Bon up and take him to the hospital. The accident almost killed him, and he was left with several serious injuries, such as a broken collarbone, a slashed neck, further injuries to his neck, and numerous missing teeth. He was put into a coma for three days and spent a further 18 days in recovery, where Vince believes Bond spent much of the time pondering what he was going to do with his life, and that he was questioning everything that had led him to this moment. After around three weeks in hospital, Bond was then taken to Vince's house in Adelaide to recover further from the injuries, where both Vince and Bond's wife Irene took good care of him. Irene revealed in her tell-all book, titled My Bond Scott, about the pair's relationship that his voice seemed to change after the accident, as she was quoted as saying, Well, I did feel that after he had the neck injury and broken collarbone and a cut in his throat, his voice didn't sound the same. He didn't seem to be able to do the same thing. He was doing a lot of melodic singing before, had a beautiful tone in his voice, but I don't think that tone was the voice he ended up with 
or that he had before. It was the ACDC voice everyone knows. The fateful accident would keep Bon in Adelaide for the time being, when Vince decided his friend needed help to get out of his rut, and what better way to do it than finding him the perfect band to join, as music was so important to Bon. Vince and Irene then helped Bon find a couple of odd jobs here and there, and he landed a job as a roadie, but he didn't want to go back to working an average day job. He instead dreamed of becoming a rock and roll star, and that feeling that he was meant to be something or someone never left him, as he once said, quote, I always knew I was something other than a worker. Bond's mother Isa also claimed, quote, All he wanted to do was be a singer in a band. You couldn't stop him. Once he made up his mind, that's what he wanted to do, and he just did it. For Bon, it was time to leave fraternity behind for good, as it became a toxic environment for him. And instead, that band he so desperately needed to revitalise this passion would of course be ACDC. With Bon almost back to full recovery, Vince sent him to the Paraka Hotel in Adelaide to watch and meet the band that would eventually catapult him to fame and see him achieve his dreams. The fraternity band would go on to reform without Bon in 1975, featuring the now Australian music legend Jimmy Barnes as their new lead vocalist. However, they once again disbanded after a lack of success and members deciding to go their own way. Bon, on the other hand, was just getting started, bringing his rough and wild attitude to the high-powered music of ACDC as they begin preparations for their debut album. On the next instalment of Lyrics of Their Life, the ACDC story we delve into what the Bon Scott era looked like. So join us next week for that episode. Don't forget to check out our other episodes from season one and two. You can also find us on social media at places like Facebook and Instagram. If you're really enjoying the podcast and would like to give back for the hard work that goes into it, it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave a review on iTunes, let your friends know about what they've been missing out on and click the free subscribe button to the podcast so you can receive notifications when new episodes become available direct to you. If you would like to support the podcast that one step further, then feel free to head to our Patreon page or buymeacoffee.com where you can pledge your support for as little as $1 a month. Every bit of support is greatly appreciated and it means I can continue to bring you more great episodes in the future. Once again, thank you all for listening. I'm your host Adam Hampton and this is Lyrics of Their Life.